Welcome to the Esri and the Science of War podcast. This month, we're looking at how location technology and high-tech maps are helping to heal our oceans. Most of us are aware that plastic pollution in our oceans is killing marine life. What's less well-known is that lost or abandoned fishing equipment, what's called ghost gear, accounts for most of that. The Ocean Conservancy describes ghost gear as the single most harmful form of marine debris. It threatens food security for billions of people and the health of our oceans. Our sister podcast in Canada talked to coastal planner Leah Fulton, who studied this threat. Lost gear not only generates mortalities against different marine species and reduces biodiversity, um, but it can also trap uh, economically valuable catch with species that aren't targeted as part of the fishery, like those species at risk. Leah Fulton tells Esri's Guan Yu about documenting the extent of lost fishing gear and how an Esri story map helped mobilize action. Hi, Leah. Hi. You started in university as an urban planning student, and for your master's study, you choose marine management. Tell us what got you into marine conservation. So being from Nova Scotia, it's really hard to move away from the Salter and Sea. Um, During my undergraduate degree at Dalhousie, the community design program allowed me to explore a bunch of different topics, such as housing, transportation, environmental planning, and placemaking, um, and the like, with the ability to um, put put in different perspectives and being able to think about creative solutions. When I was first introduced to GIS, I loved being able to combine those artistic components of mapping with uh, planning application. So really to tell kind of stories or look at different relationships and ultimately to find, you know, a deeper meaning to these, you know, issues or, or, you know, things that were going on in the urban environment. I became really attached to landscape planning and structural connectivity and was really fortunate to work on some interesting projects um, in Nova Scotia and in Prince Edward Island. But being from Nova Scotia and studying right beside the ocean, I felt that I didn't really know what was going on beyond the shoreline. So I knew I wanted a challenge and I wanted to explore an issue that not everybody can see and that is ghost gear. So you're research study where the fishing gear went missing and where they're retrieved or where they can be retrieved. What drew you to this specific issue? So to give you some context, abandoned, lost, or otherwise discarded fishing gear, also known as ghost gear, is considered marine debris that is either deliberately or accidentally lost at sea. Um, It's being recognized globally and nationally, and we're seeing more and more of these issues surface uh, from the presence of that ghost gear has on our oceans, and it makes it a really important issue to solve. So I've seen posts on on social media, and I'm I'm sure a lot of people have of um, you know entanglements with larger marine mammals um, or species at risk, um, and gear that is eventually breaking down into microplasts, and you know ultimately leading into our our food systems. So having grown up near these fishing communities on the eastern shore and seeing lost gear appear on shorelines that I live really close to, I didn't realize this was such an issue and it started to hit really close to home. So the planner inside of me started to think, you know, how are local fishing communities um, 
you know, ties to these land and sea interactions. And I started to think about even the larger impact that ghost gear has on keeping them, you know, thriving essentially. Mm -hmm. So, um, so oh, <laughs> uh, when I was uh, presented with the opportunity to work with Coastal Action, um, I quickly jumped on board and I'll be honest, I didn't really know a lot about ghost gear and, and fully understood the impacts until then. So once I started to learn more, uh, what really drew me to the to the issue was the kind of collaborative nature of attempting to tackle the problem mm -hmm. and exploring, again, questions that have not been answered. Yeah. Can you briefly talk about Coastal Action, what kind of organization they are and what kind of things they do? Yeah, absolutely. Coastal Action is a non-for-profit uh, non environmental organization uh, based out of Southwest Nova Scotia, and they work on a multitude of issues within kind of that region. Um, so anywhere from, you know, your freshwater, uh, freshwater um, issues, um, your coastal and marine, so microplastics or ghost gear, um, they really tackle these in a, in a really innovative and, and collaborative approach. Um, and truly, truly try to get community kind of action and involvement in the type of work uh, that they're doing. So it's really incredible. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't realize how extensive the problem is, the lost fishing gear, until I read your story map. And you kind of touched on a couple of like impact um, that it has on the local communities, on ecosystems, on marine animals, but also on the local communities, can you elaborate on what are some of the um, direct impact on local fishing communities? Yeah, absolutely. So when you think of like marine debris as a as a whole, eighty percent of that marine debris um, originates from kind of land based sources, and that other twenty percent is believed to be um, from marine based sources. And lost fishing gear comes in all shapes and sizes, and it can travel really far distances before it starts appearing on shorelines. So things like lobster traps, ropes, cable, aquaculture nets um, are just some of the few examples that can become ghost gear eventually. And this is a huge problem because lost gear not only generates mortalities against different marine species, and reduces by uh, you know benthic biodiversity, um, but it can also trap uh, economically valuable catch, um, you know, with species that aren't targeted as part of the fishery, like those species at risk. And when marine species are caught in these kind of traps, this cyclical process of self baiting starts to begin. So essentially, when you think of a, a you know a lobster, for example, getting caught in um, gear that is no longer um, able to be retrieved, uh, it begins to you know another lobster could crawl into that space, and again that that process uh, begins. So when we retrieve gear like with bycatch, essentially, you get these jumbo lobsters because they've been continuously feeding on each other how hard it is to retrieve the lost fishing gear. Yeah, there are, it is very challenging to retrieve ghost gear. And uh, one of them being that this work is actually really expensive. Um, because of the high cost of removing gear, there are actually very few studies that have analyzed this impact of ghost gear um, and how much it has had an impact on the environment and the economy. 
um, and as well as the you know types of technologies that are being used for gear detection or retrieval. So we've seen you know for things like um, gear detection, we've seen side scan sonar used in you know application um, to detect archaeological sites and um, you know perhaps locations of pipelines. But the biggest difference with targeting ghost gear for gear detection and other applications that use side scan sonar is the fact that ghost gear is so mobile. It continues to move around the environment and it's really hard to detect and really hard to catch. Um, so to give you an idea of the types of costs that it takes to kind of complete a, you know, a nine day survey mission, the, the expenses can exceed over $100,000. And if you were to um, kind of, you know, detect gear on a one kilometer squared uh, kind of area, those costs can vary between, you know, upwards of $750 to $900 for a one kilometer area squared um, kind of location. And that cost doesn't capture um, you know, what it takes to retrieve the gear and recycle the gear. So I'm hearing only detecting alone, it's very complicated task because you're monitoring something that is constantly moving. So unless you have a really quick cycle from, you know, when you're detecting the data from when you're retrieving it, the situations are changing and the monitoring technology itself is not cheap in comparison to, you know, satellites that we have for land coverings. Exactly. Any, can you, can you talk about the, um, the effort spent in retrieving itself? Now we talk about de de detecting the lost uh, fishing gears. How about the retrieving process itself? Yeah, absolutely. So for coastal action throughout 2020 and 2021, uh, Coastal Action spearheaded 159 at-sea retrieval days. So captains from 10 vessels towed grapples over uh, nearly 400,000 uh, kilometers to search the seafloor um, and essentially removed 25,000 kilograms of marine debris off the coast of southwest Nova Scotia. So this includes places like the Bay of Fundy, uh, around through Digby, Yarmouth, and then up um, into kind of the Lunenburg area. So it's it's really incredible the work that they do. Um, and again, these come at high costs. Yeah, so that's 10 vessels over 159 days. And do we have a rough idea of how, what is the percentage of the retrieved lost fishing gear in comparison to what is still down at the ocean bottom? I, I think that's a hard one to answer because we don't really know. Um, there's, there's so much gear that's been, you know, historically out there from, from past kind of use um, that it's really hard to quantify how much gear, how, how much of an impact that, that um, just, you know, 25,000 kilograms of gear really made in that environment. Um, so it's really hard to say. But that's a, a good question, you know, a, a, something to look into. Yeah. Your, your research um, involves a lot of questions about where, you know, where things are lost, where things are moved to, and where things are retrieved. How is GIS being used for this project? I mean, in addition to a, the amazing story map you created, I'd imagine you use 
location technology in some other ways. Can you talk about that? Yeah, there are many ways that GIS helps us understand where gear is being lost and, and where it's being found. And in order to start planning where you're going to retrieve, it's really important to, to know where to look. Um, so retrieval captains contributed knowledge on, you know, on locations with regards to distribution of, of ghost gear. Um, and Coastal Action was actually able to gather some intel on, on gear loss from local fishers, which is honestly really critical to retrieval success. Um, the local knowledge from fishers can reveal locations of hotspot kind of value or locations where gear is appearing on coastal shorelines. And within Canada, there have been recent changes uh, in the conditions of license um, managed by Fisheries and Oceans Canada, which now require uh, lost and retrieved gear reporting in all ground fish and shrimp fisheries. Um, so what that means is essentially that, you know, now we have a, a more, um, you know, um, reporting system that allows us to use that data um, to essentially target retrieval areas. What this essentially means is we're able to use that data to um, determine these broad scale patterns, but the community intel was really uh, the one who provided more detail at smaller scales. Um, and when you think of an operation of gear using side scan sonar for those large scale retrieval missions, GIS data that is being used includes, you know, historical fishing pressures, um, depth of the seafloor, wave direction, as well as kind of broad scale direction and strength of ocean currents um, to ensure that we're hitting the right spots when we're, when we're planning and operating um, gear detection and retrieval missions. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. When you're talking about first gathering that local knowledge about where they suspect, um, you know, the, the amount of like fishing gears is large enough and bring that, convert that into data and bringing it to, into the planning process, I imagine, you know, someone is taking a hard copy of a map and going to the local communities and kind of like map, draw it out on maps. Um, is, is that what, what happened? So it's because we were operating during this time of COVID, it was a lot more challenging um, to really make those interactions and those connections. But we did try like as best as we could to really gather kind of that intel and that knowledge um, by essentially uh, being able to kind of locate different coordinates and, and being able to pinpoint on, you know, things like Google Maps or, or whatnot mm -hmm. uh, to identify areas that, you know, were locations that, you know, even the local fishermen who were retrieving the gear had previously lost gear. Mm -hmm. um, so in a perfect world, had this not been during COVID times, we would have definitely been sitting right down at the table to, um, you know, again, uh, build that trust and, and build those relationships with those local fishermen. And it ultimately has proved to be the most successful way, despite all the data, um, all the spatial data that's out there. Mm -hmm. And after you retrieved more gears and have more data, kind of ground truth, the, the, the knowledge that they provided, is there a process that, you know, that information will go back to the community? Do you work or does the project work with community in such a way that 
the local um, fishermen are involved in each of the steps. Yeah, absolutely. So fishers have contributed to selecting our target areas, have designed grapples and equipment, um, adapted and, and strengthened you know, different methods and showed uh, collaborative communication, which has truly been, again, a stewardship component to the, to the project. Um, where SideScan Sonar was not present, a significant amount of gear was retrieved based on the guidance of you know, those local retrieval fishers. So really just proving that they hold a wealth of knowledge that can be incorporated in all stages of ghost gear retrieval and detection. And, you know, tackling this, this problem is not easy. Um, so when you have that, you know, that, um, that, that local intel and, and that insight, um, you know, that's really the, the, the whole or the, the center of it all to really build off of. Um, so we really um, engage with retrieval fishermen and that we're seeing, um, you know, based on um, kind of feedback we've been getting um, that people are looking to participate um, year after year because they, they're seeing the impacts that it has on their fishery. Um, so they're also wanting to get engaged and, you know, help reduce the problem or mitigate the problem. Sounds amazing. So a growing awareness leads to growing interest from the locals as well. I, I was wondering what happens to the fishing gear once you retrieve them? Yeah, so once gear is retrieved, all retrieved gear is either disposed of, uh, you know, responsibly, so returned to owners in collaboration with DFO and harbor authorities, it's repurposed, um, or it's brought to a municipal landfill. So usable gear is typically brought back to fishers, um, but gear that wasn't claimed um, is, you know, given to uh, others to either produce arts installations or is used by local crafters. Um, but the gear that is unusable uh, ends up in uh, local waste management facilities. There's really few options that exist right now at a scale for kind of alternative uses of ghost gear and end of life gear in the region. Um, and this is even more difficult when you think of regions that are even more isolated than those um, in Southwest Nova Scotia. So those in you know Newfoundland or even Cape Breton even. Um, so re recycling is, is proving to be difficult um, but we are seeing, again, new and innovative ways, and, and we're hoping that this does, uh, you know, progress and move forward um, in the future very soon. Yes. So the challenge didn't really stop at the point when you get the fishing gears out from the ocean. Why is it so difficult to recycle them? Uh, a lot of the, the issues with regards to recycling have to do with kind of permitting and the capacity to recycle. So when you think of um, rope, for example, and how you recycle rope, it, it really needs to be shredded and, and broken down. And some of these recycling facilities don't have machines that are able to shred down um, rope to, uh, you know, to a, a, a way or a proper kind of um, package that can be used for other purposes. Um, again, either because of a permitting issue um, or a uh, or the fact that you know they're just not able to to do that. You know, I love geospatial data, and I think it's so valuable to the work that I you know that I've done in the past with planning and the stuff that I continue to do today. And um, it might seem silly, but really the biggest 
the biggest takeaway that you can get from this kind of project is the collaborative nature of it. And to always making sure that you're engaging with, you know, your local community, um, because they are ultimately the ones that are being affected. And they are also, also ultimately the ones that are going to receive the most benefit from this kind of work. When you start to work with the people at a local level and from a bottom-up approach instead of a top-down approach, you get better results in the end. And that's something that is is kind of hopefully uh, distributed or, you know, um, pursued in, in new uh, new ways in the future when we think about ghost gear and when we think about marine conservation in general. Thank you very much, Leah. Thanks for taking time to join us today. And thanks for bringing this very interesting research to us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to Leah Fulton for explaining how technology can mitigate large-scale threats to marine life and the ocean. If you like this episode, please share it with a colleague.